Welcome to the Signal Line Remote Viewing Podcast, a podcast owned and run by Daz Smith from RemoteViewed.com, the resource for everything remote viewing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing remote viewing related interviews, views, news, resources, and much more. Hi, my name is Dan Smith, and this is The Signal Line. Today's podcast was a remote viewing community discussion on February the 19th, 2021. The guest for this podcast was Ellie Flippin, the niece of late Ingo Swan. Ellie, the niece of Ingo Swan, is one of the people in charge of his estate. In this podcast, we discuss the latest manuscript release called Master of Harmlessness and Ingo Swan's other published works. We also discussed his art, his remote viewing, and Eddie shared some amazing photographs and memories of growing up with Ingo Swan. This is a fantastic community talk with lots of great questions, comments, and new information. Okay, and as I'm going through this, if anyone has questions, feel free to just stop and ask me. I'm happy to answer whatever I can answer. Um, if I don't know, I'll tell you I don't know, and if I can, I'll... I'll let you in. Um, Ingo is a remarkable individual and I lived with him three times during my life. Well, actually, I guess we lived with him four times when we were growing up. He would often stay with us when he was working at SRI and, and sometimes he'd stay at the hotel near SRI in Menlo Park and sometimes he would stay with us. And sometimes he would bring some of his students like Tom McNear over to have dinner or some cocktails with us as family, not with me, because I was very young. I was in middle school at the time when that happened. But after I graduated from college, I lived with him. And then when I was in um, business school and after I graduated from business school, I lived with him. And then when I did a sort of turnaround of a nonprofit organization right near the end of his life, I also lived with him. So I got to see him sort of from beginning to end in different phases of his life. But I really wanted to focus on this new story that we put out, The Master of Harmlessness. However, I did want to sort of kind of give some background on Ingo and me and share some stories with you as well. So um, this is one of the one of my more favorite photographs. We use it a lot in, in social media. And the reason I enjoy it so much is if you look at the hairs on his arms, you can see that they're all sort of like standing at attention. And I think that this speaks volumes about Ingro's sort of electric personality and his magnetism. And it's just remarkable to see it in photographic form. So um, to the world, Ingo was the father of remote viewing, sort of a visionary, a consciousness researcher, parapsychology's most tested guinea pig. And um, so I thought it would be kind of fun to also say, well, you know, he talks a lot about being a Virgo and in his real story of remote viewing, he talks about the Virgo party where he first meets um, Bob Monroe and Cleve Baxter. And so he sort of felt very united with Virgos and was very proud to be a Virgo, but he was also something in the Chinese Zodiac. And I kind of wondered if anybody knew what he was because it seemed very appropriate to his personality. And that is, he was a rooster. And rooster people are extravagant. They love anything that draws attention to them. 
They are unafraid to be different. They're progressive thinkers and they're doers. And I thought, well, there couldn't be a better sign for Ingo. So he certainly picked the most optimal sign for who he was and his gifts to the world, right? Forward thinking and solid self-confidence, which is exactly what he had. So I just want to kind of share that kind of insight because it it reflects on who he was and kind of the, the face that he put forward, but also the kind of person that he was. So, um, so just kind of to give you a little insight, when I thought about it, well, being a rooster was exactly right on, right? He was full of dreams. He was colorful. He was attractive. He was radiant. He was dashing. And he was really quite proud of himself. So I thought I'd kind of share some pictures that reflect that. Um, the rooster is the strutting peacock of the Chinese zodiac. He's a deep thinker. He's very talented, but he was also a little eccentric. And if you can see here, this is when he had his mohawk and his big chains, and, and he's quite a big personality. Um, he was very happy when he was surrounded by others. He loved parties. He was incredibly social. He was often entertaining people at his home at 357 Bowery. And this is actually, I think his 56th birthday party. We actually did a surprise birthday party for him. And, and he, although he hated it, he loved it. Um, and then they expect others to listen to themselves because if not, they become very agitated if others don't listen. They love starting controversies and express themselves very well in writing and speech, which of course, Ingo excelled at both. They probe deeply with their inquisitive, busy minds. They're very observant, they're accurate, and they're precise, which if you worked with Ingo, you knew that was a, a very strong trait. And you can perhaps say they have a sixth sense. So I was, again, what a better sign I couldn't even imagine for Ingo. So what would it be like to get an audience with Mr. Swan? And I saw this happen quite often. And so I thought it would be fun to kind of share what that experience would be like. And so I chose a quote from Angela Smith. And, and she says that she goes to the Bowery and there she is in and amongst his incredible art surrounded by this vast collection of books, you know, and understanding that when we made the donation to the University of West Georgia, there are over 3,500 books just alone. And some of them are either one copy or one of two copies in the world. So he was just an ardent collector of knowledge. And you'll see that in a moment. And, and so she says, yes, he could be like a curmudgeon. He didn't like the media. He was burned out on research. He was often in a bad mood but he still welcomed me anyway. And I think that's what you would experience if you came down and you visited and you talked to him and you wanted to ask him questions. And, and in some ways he often didn't like the moniker father of remote viewing, but he wasn't displeased with it either. And, you know, he really felt like he was um, just in the right place at the right time with remote viewing. He says that it's something he adapted from a hundred years before to women who were kind of in, engaged in, I guess, traveling, tra traveling clairvoyance. And he really just adapted what they were doing and, and really grew out of there. And, and Angela says, no, really, he was the right person at the right time in the right place. So uh, I wanted to talk just a moment about 357 Bowery. That was his home on the Lower East Side. Uh, when he first came to New York in the late 50s after getting out of the army, he lived in Greenwich Village, which was west of this location. 
but really wanted to be kind of in the nitty gritty and the Bowery at that time certainly was. In the early 70s, he moved into this building, 357. Um, it was a very highly commercial area. Um, and when it finally came for sale a few years later in the mid 70s, he purchased it with a partner. Um, and so he was living there while he was starting his work at SRI. And then of course in 1984, and 1984 is kind of an interesting year because as you may know, there was a handful of some personalities who showed up at 357 Bowery to do some training with Ingo. And they have wonderful, remarkable stories. And I actually just found the Polaroid of this group together. And I think Paul Smith has put it out and he has it in the bigger version. And you can see this group is front of, in front of Ingo's most uh, wondrous painting, Millennium. Millennium is actually, this is his sub-basement where his studio was down here. And Millennium stretched from corner to corner inside the basement. And each panel of this painting is eight feet by 10 feet and there are three panels. So they took up this entire space in the sub-basement. But um, you can sort of kind of still see some of the markings from the writing still on the building. And here we are in, in 2010. And what's kind of interesting about the 2000s is we start to see photographs and we start to see something interesting. We see um, what Ingo would often do, and that is to hang out on his stoop and just talk to anybody who went by. And I don't know that anybody realized that this person who kind of looked like a vagrant was actually the great Ingo Swan. And you can see it in this, in this building from 2010. I've kind of like just highlighted where he is. And today you can actually find him in Google Maps of 357. This one is from, um, 2008, here he is sitting on his stoop with his coffee, again, with the door propped open. And um, again, here is May of 2011, here he is again sitting. And then once again, here's Google where he's sitting again. So, he, so if you were to visit him, you would most likely encounter him on the stoop waiting for you to come inside. And once you were kind of past whatever requirement um, questions he might ask of you to get in. Before that even happened, before he would agree to even speak to you, the big key to getting into the door and beyond the stoop is astrology. And he, astrology was in a very important and fundamental aspect to Ingo. And so he would request your date of birth, your place of birth and your time. And he would do your chart and he would then decide if you could get in and meet with him and talk with him or not. So it was really kind of funny that everything would start with astrology for him. And then once you were inside and you came inside 357 Bowery, the first thing you would notice is that it was exceptionally dark. Um, there, were, there were lights, as you can kind of see in this photograph, but you can see the darkness behind Ingo. And, Ingo, I think there was literally one plug and everything ran off an extension cord to that one plug. And so it was very dark. So you would notice that right away. And then you would be brought in and you would sit in his office. And his office was really a space that was lined by bookshelves. And here you can kind of see some of this huge library that he had collected. I mean, it was just impressive library. And um, he didn't have the internet. He had the foresight to say, no, I'm not gonna have the internet because the government will be watching me. And that was in the, in the 90s, but he did have a fax machine and that's how he communicated with everyone. 
Um, and you can see right now he's sitting on the other side, but you can see behind the table, just the ex huge number of books that he had. And so if you came, this would be the chair that you sat in, you would talk to him. I spent many mornings reading newspaper just like this that's out here to him while he sat across the way, always with his cigar in hand. And I would take a fan that looks like is like out here and bring it in and make sure that the air was blowing at him so I didn't have to, to smell the smoke. But everybody else who came just sat and they just took in the smoke with Ingo. So it was uh, quite an adventure to be in there with him. Um, and so I thought maybe for those who, uh, there are lots of sides to Ingo, and one of them is being a character, and he could be somewhat blunt at times, and I thought it might be fun. Um, this is some of the footage from a documentary that was started back in 2009 with Ingo, and if he could just share his own words with you about saying hello and how he feels about um, meeting somebody. Ellie, there's no audio. You need to oh, share you can't your, hear You have to share your audio. There's okay. an option at the top of the screen. Okay. Options. I think it's, and then there's more, and then there's share audio. Let's do that. It's a if that doesn't option. work, you can stop sharing. And when you share again, there's a little yes. tick box below. Let's do that. Okay, I will. Okay. So, okay. Okay, let's see if you can hear it now. Okay. Tell me if you can hear it now. Go ahead. Talk to me and say hi, Ingo. How are you? I'd like to talk to you about. It's good. How are you? Good. <laughs> Tell us about the ladies. Just sort of start into that. What? Um, just you know, I want you to just say something. Say hi. I'm Ingo Swan, and you know, just anything. Hi. I'm Ingo Swan. I'm here under protest. <laughs> Okay. So that's what he would like to do. And you can see just around and behind him in this picture is his computer, actually astrology books um, all behind his head. So I think those were very important to him. And they kept, they were very close to him. And if you did speak with Ingo and you engaged in a conversation with him, this is um, from Extraplanetary Experiences, Alien and Human Contact and the Expansion of Consciousness by Thomas James Streeter. And I'll just read a part of it um, for everyone in a moment. 
Um, but I encourage you to look at this book because there's a much longer conversation he has with Ingo. And, and the author says, he's, he's talking about the Jupiter experiment and he and Ingo are talking about it. And he's saying that the Jupiter experiment is part of this expansion of consciousness. And, and Ingo's saying it's not very important. And the author's saying, but it's important to others. And Ingo says, well, let them find it then. Let them change their own consciousness. I'm going to die here within some expectable time and I'm not gonna worry about the practical problems of the human species. I'm past that. And Streeter says, well, there's a reason you're sharing this with me. And Ingo says, probably because you're here. And Streeter says, but you invited me here also. And Ingo says, but you asked if you could come. And Streeter says, you could just as easily said no, so there is a reason I'm here. And Ingo says, the reason for you being here and my reason for talking with you seem to be two different things. And Sweetser says, do you want me to just report on the scientific end of this? And Ingo says, I don't care what you report on, it's your book. And I think that was kind of the nature with Ingo is really, um, having fun and engaging in a dialogue and having kind of a sneaky kind of personality. But for me, um, Ingo was always just Uncle Ingo to me, right? And so to me, he was just part of our family and that's the way I looked at him. So my viewpoint of him is a little bit different than I think most people, just because he was just so much part of my growing up in my life, right? And so when I lived with him, he taught me to be aware of my surroundings, to memorize the subway system, you know, where to go, what stops to get off. He showed me shortcuts and cut throughs in the, in the system. He told me to avoid the tourists in Times Square and to avoid the seedy underbelly where the um, kind of the, uh, the, the ones that had no qualm about doing drugs or in, engaging in other kind of activities in Tompkins Square Park. He introduced me to the corner of bodega guys. I think all things that a family member would do to help you adjust to the new city, but he did something else too. So this is a modern um, view from Google Maps. It shows the corner of Bowery and East 4th Street. And we can sort of see over in this direction um, is the, the 357 Bowery where he lived. And um, this is where the Bowery splits off and becomes the Cooper Square goes this way in one direction, the Bowery goes the other. And I would often be tempted to take the crosswalk that was closest to the building. And if I did, I would get a severe lashing. Um, I was not allowed under any circumstances to use this crosswalk. I had to use the crosswalk on the other side with the light. I had to make sure it was green and then I would wait and I have to wait, make sure the light was green to go the other way. And, um, you know, sometimes Ingo would be waiting for me on the stoop and so he would watch me approach the building and other times um, he would be inside but trying to trick somebody who is psychic with their abilities is probably not a good strategy and it never was for me. And he would know because he always said that on the street lamp, lived a gremlin. And he told me that gremlins were very mysterious, but they were also very malicious. 
Uh, it was a spirit that's job was to just cause chaos. And the gremlin that lived on the streetlight caused many accidents in this intersection. Many pedestrians were hit. And in fact, um, in the crosswalk that I was not allowed to use, a drunk driver had come down, crossed over the, the median, hit two pedestrians, turned over and actually crashed into his building. So that was kind of commonplace, but he said he could see clear as day the gremlin that lived on, on this um, street corner. So in addition to getting just the friendly advice that a family member would get, I also got guidance from somebody who could see things that I couldn't see and could interact with things that I couldn't necessarily interact with, but was very, very strong in his opinion about what I should do or not do, especially with these other entities and beings. So I think that was the fun part of being with Ingo. Another fun part was who would come and visit us at 357. In this case, um, this is Alex Image, and this is Alex Image's birthday party. Uh, and they're a huge gathering of individuals. And this is a thing that happened frequently at 357 Mowrigs. Ingo was uh, loved to entertain. He loved to socialize, and he loved to get people drunk. So you can see this party. But Alex was a great character with with us. Um, my uncle and I spend a lot of time with Alex. If you don't know Alex, he edited this book called The Incredible Tales of the Paranormal, and you can see one of Ingo's paintings on the cover. The foreword is by Colin Wilson, who is another frequent guest at 357 Bowery. But Alex was a great believer in the tales of all things of the paranormal, so poltergeists, uh, levitations, phantoms, and other phenomena. And there, every time that he would find something of, of interest, he would always ask Ingo and if I was around with me to go and sort of investigate and see what his newest find was. And I remember one time we, we went up to the Bronx and there was um, a young man and he was in sort of like a toga or a white sheet kind of wrappings. And he had um, from the far, like far East um, kind of, uh, I want to say makeup, but colorings on his face. And his thing was levitating. And Alex was so excited to find this young man and to find a young man that could levitate. And he was sort of behind a wall. We couldn't really see sort of, it was sort of about knee height, the wall. And at some point, this, this young man began to go up into the air and Ingo just started to laugh and giggle. And he just said, can't you see the fishing wire? And and so um, poor Alex, you know, he just really wanted to believe it was possible and this young man was able to levitate, but um, oftentimes he got taken advantage of too. And so um, I think Inga was there for sort of a reality check, but sometimes he found things that were, that were, were quite extraordinary. And so we always relished our time with Alex. And if you haven't read the book, it's an it's a interesting read. So, um, what did I learn about the paranormal from Uncle Ingo? Well, I learned that there are no ghosts, which I thought was considerably funny coming from the Gremlin spokesman of the year. But then he taught me that really there are, that ghosts are really just energy trails, like a film stuck on a loop or on repeat. But he did say there are entities in other realities and other dimensions, and we can all cross space and time to reach them, and they us, and you know, from personally watching my uncle have to deal with an entity from another reality, I learned that applying copious amounts of sage and salt, that those things don't work. 
from those beings, trying, trying to get rid of those beings. It just doesn't work. Um, he would tell me there are energy vortexes and energy channels all over the earth, and we can see them if we open our eyes. That the fakes and the scam artists make it very hard for the truth to break through. And that fear prevents us from seeing a way through and we must want to lift the veil. And your own aura photograph is a must have. That's what I learned from him. So um, most importantly, I think what he wanted us all to do was to figure out that we all have these extraordinary abilities and we can find them if we just illuminate them or if we just remember them. Um, and this is a painting that hung in in the basement at 357. This is called um, Gnosis. And it's what he explained to me is Gnosis is impregnating a brain rock. So Gnosis being knowledge to him and then impregnating this brain rock. And, and um, a really interesting, I haven't really quite figured out all the symbols. Um, Ingo is a big user of symbolism in this painting, even though it has an astrology chart, the, Zodiac is not in the right order and it's at differing degrees and I think there's a message in there, but I'm not quite sure what the message is. And then, of course, it looks like the pyramids in Giza, but it could also be pyramids on Mars, as we know that he um, remote viewed Mars, at least on two occasions that we know of. So uh, what I thought might be fun is kind of to hear from Ingo about conveying the magnificent. So in this clip, he's talking about going to Jupiter and what it was like to be in space. And, and I think it kind of shows that, you know, that he's, he sees that there's beauty out in space, but also kind of speaking to like, if we unhinged ourselves from that that holds us back and, and what the potential is, especially with remote viewing. It took you, what, eight minutes to get to Jupiter? Yes, in your sir. Mind? Yes, sir. And what did you see along the way? Oh, well, what I essentially saw in the two-second trip, space is colored. It's beautiful. It's not black. It's not empty either. There's stuff in space. It's not a vacuum. It's colored. It's gorgeous. And uh, and I found it the same thing. The, the the most predominant color in space, according to me, in both instances, is sort of a light brown color, which I didn't really expect. But well, the Hubble photographs come very close, but they're, they're on tiny pages, you know, and you can't get the, if you're out there, you get this feeling of eternity going in all directions, you know, there's not a frame around it, and that's really wild. Yeah, everything we see has a frame around it, including my paintings, you know, it's locked into this thing here, but you get into them a medium such as the whole universe. And um, there's even sound in space, harmonic sounds. Sound like whale noises or? No, 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 nothing so 
poor whales. I mean, that's sort of crude in a way. Now those trembling sounds, vibrational sounds, and uh, it's great. It was great. Do Forgive you, me for wandering off. No, but it's fantastic. So when I think about that and kind of reaching that stage where Ingo was, uh, I think before he even got to that point, right, he really looked into how he could clear his obstructions to perceptions. And I love this photograph, this photograph of three of his paintings from the Great Mystery Show at the American Visioning Art Museum, two are on loan. Um, the first one, the first and middle one being the Edgar Casey aura chart, which Ingo depicted um, all of Casey's, taking Casey's writings and painting his past lives. The painting on the left being one of his highway paintings from the 1970s. And the painting on the right being the last painting Ingo would paint, and that is cosmic intelligence. And really kind of, for me, a reflecting of his journey to where he was throughout his life. And so the aura chart kind of being where he was studying everything and learning everything and absorbing everything to when he got into the 70s, where he was kind of putting that together and pushing the boundaries, right? The, the highways being the roads we travel on earth and then the roads we can travel with uh, our minds or our abilities, right? Unobstructed and forever, as he said, into the infinite. And then the cosmic knowledge, kind of the sharing of this vast intelligence that we are all, we, if we open our eyes, have the ability to see and experience. And so I thought it was kind of a great journey, a journey photograph of, to show his painting styles, but also the journey he took for his knowledge. And um, before starting on that path, right, before any of us can do any of that, Ingo talks about the pursuit of self-knowledge, about finding happiness and making an effort towards positive change. And this is one of the um, un many unfinished paintings that Ingo undertook. And I think it um, would have been an extraordinary painting had he finished it, but really the kind of heart center being love and this angelic figure, um, toward what he was talking about and talking about actually in the master of harmlessness, which was a, a uh, group of papers, this kind of manuscript that for some reason, when I came across it, I didn't send it to the University of West Georgia. I thought it was maybe an early draft of Purple Fables. I didn't really understand. And it wasn't until I did a radio show with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. And as part of that, they had kind of gathered together Ingo's um, previous interviews with Purple Fables and, and the clip that they shared with me, he talks about this manuscript, The Master of Harmlessness, or really the tale of the Master of Harmlessness. And instantly I knew exactly why I felt like I had to hold this back. I knew I had to put it out. And its message is so pure and so beautiful and so essential to I think what Ingo is talking to us about. And um, I came across this wonderful quote uh, that kind of sums it up. He says, in a very great sense, I have been free. 
And for the most part, I've been happy. And I find myself grateful to such a kind fortune. But by now I see that I should try to return something to life for its many graces and kindnesses to me. I don't really know how to do that, of course, but I don't completely know what life wants. Perhaps if I write my thoughts and thinking life will then perhaps know that I am grateful for it. And, and I thought, wow, this is just a, a marvelous story. And when I was, um, Daz had asked me to speak to this group and I was watching one of the previous um, get togethers that you guys had, I saw Russell and I saw Russell speaking about love and I saw Russell speaking about these kind of ancient Eastern philosophies about how you clear the way, how you get these things so that out of, out of you, your demons out of you, your, your, and you absorb your beautiful essence as the starting ground for how we could um, start to learn to perceive and open up and do all these things. And I thought, wow, this book, this book and what Russell is saying are completely united. And, and I asked Daz, well, can we talk about this book? Because this book is to me so important. Well, once they held it back and, and, and waited until there was a message to do it at the right time. But because I think it can touch so many people. And um, interestingly, Dr. Dr. Bob sent me a, an email. They, they asked for, for copies of books that we're doing. And I had sent him this because obviously they inspired it. And he gets a lot of things and they're super busy. So he kind of put it aside. And he said one night he was laying in bed and he was reading something else. And he said, clearly just out of the blue, like he heard Inga's voice say, hello, Bob. And um, Bob said he's like heard things internally, but he's never heard such an external voice. And he knew right away, like he put his hand down and he found this book and he said, he just read it cover to cover right after that. And he said, this book needs to be shared with the world. This book is phenomenal. And I thought, well, okay, well that's sort of confirmation about wanting to talk to, to you guys this evening about this book and, and, and hoping that you've read it and their messages and, and wanting to kind of share that and talk about it. Because I think there's um, the essence of illumination and knowledge that Inga would later go on to write in the wisdom category is something very important and, and learning how to ask questions of ourselves, learning to question ourselves and, and look inside ourselves. And so that's really why I, I'm, I'm here and I'm interested in, to hear what everybody has to say. Thanks, Eddie, for sharing that with us. I'm, you know, I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of everyone here. And, you know, thank you for sharing all those uh, memories and pictures and stuff. It's fantastic. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for, for allowing me to share Ingo with everyone. I mean, he is such a character. And if I can provide any insight and, as I said, answer any questions, I'm happy to. Okay, guys, so this is open to you guys. Now, if you want to ask any questions or, or share anything about the book that you read or anything. Hi, Ellie. This is Pablo. Hello. So, you know, three things happened to me after I read the book. You know, that's published. Uh, we we're going to have this session. I got the book as soon as possible. Thankfully, even the, the career got fast. So I really enjoy it. But three main things happened. First of all, I really felt it different to the Purple Fables it had a different sense. Second, it felt like it's a story I've heard 
somewhere else, but I knew not from someone. It's something that is deep, deep within you and it resonated somehow. And third, it is come to my mind, Ingo mentions in the book that he felt someone was dictating it to him, right? Mm -hmm. Are you or is anyone aware if he did any research on that? Or is just left as a mystery for, for us to figure out when we pass on? Well, I think like everything with Ingo, it's a mystery for us to all learn and, and absorb. I mean, I know I was with him when Purple Fate, when he, when he said he woke up four days in a row and Purple Fables was dictated to him. And this was the, he writes in the manuscript, these are the same, whatever, the same, the same coming from somewhere that he felt compelled to have to do it. And um, it's not unlike the, his painting, The Lightbringer. So he felt that an entity got in touch with him and the entity asked him or dictated to him to paint The Lightbringer. And The Lightbringer is a portrait of that entity. So I, I think with Ingo, he just accepted these things as normal and just went with it. Thank you. Thank you very much for sharing. Even the little one is enjoying the talk right now. <laughs> Uh, who's up next? Go ahead. You're on mute still. We can't hear you. Uh, I think I think may have lost him there. I have a question someone wrote down for me on the board. I, I better ask. Um, the question was, uh, it's not related to this book, but someone asked, are there any plans to publish a book of Ingo's art? Because they're desperate to see them in good, good quality print. And I'm sure many of us here would be as well. Yeah, you have to remember that Ingo started a lot of things and he didn't finish a lot of things. And that was true for his writing and it was true for his art. So his finished art, there are very few pieces of actually you know, finished, finished things. And those things are with museums, right? So Ingo never wanted to sell his work. He didn't want it reproduced. He didn't want it to be um, in sort of a lithograph form. He wanted the world to share it, right? So um, at, one, at one point, the Millennium, the Millennium paintings, he actually put up in the building that was the Trans Am building above Grand Central Station. And people would come and actually meditate in front of it. So here you have this very busy thoroughfare of people walking through and people would just sit there and meditate in front of it. And he felt that his art should be shared in that capacity, which is why we donated the pieces to the museums that we donated to them. And really with that went the copyrights as well. So it's really within the purview of the museums at this point to do something with the art. Um, he himself in the in the 70s donated three pieces to the Smithsonian, um, the Air and Space Museum. Uh, at, initially, they were on display at the Air and Space Museum in DC, and then now they're in their archives. And then, of course, his probably biggest catalog of art is his exotic, um, not exotic, but erotic art. Um, he really enjoyed 
those pieces. And we made over a hundred different um, erotic collages. And those are at the Leslie Lohman Museum of Gay and Lesbian Art, as well as probably 13 different paintings that are um, very appropriately placed with the museum, as well as the one archives um, at USC. And then the Edgar, the Edgar Casey painting is at the ARE in Virginia Beach. And so each of those places hold the copyrights, as I said. So um, I would just encourage you to visit, right? And, and encourage the museums to do something with that. Um, but I will offer that in the 70s, he and a group of maybe two or three other artists got together and they made a calendar of their art. And um, you can, I think some every once in a while, one comes for sale and maybe you can find it on eBay that they never sold very well. And um, Ingo got really frustrated and he took all of his copies and he put them out on the street in New York. And as he was, um, what he liked to do is get up really early, four or five in the morning and walk around. And, you know, he would speak to people who were out on the street and he, he, he found some enterprising young man had actually ripped out the, and cut out the, the, um, the pictures, the, the painting, the pictures of the paintings from the calendar, put them in, in frames and was selling them like hotcakes. <laughs> he couldn't sell the calendar to save his life, but somebody else was able to do that. So, uh, he, he just never really had success with that, never really wanted it, and um, we kind of adhere to his his wishes in that regard. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. Okay, guys, uh, Tamara, do you, you have a question? Well, I just, I want to say I absolutely loved the book. I hope everybody here that hasn't read it reads it. It's phenomenal. Um, you know, when I was a little girl, I couldn't understand eating any animals and I'm, I'm old now and I, I still don't get that whole concept of, so I just loved it. It was, it resonated with me a lot. I do have a question that just came to mind a second ago. Um, this Christmas I put a, at the corner, I put a free book exchange for the kids where they catch their school bus. And when I read that book, I thought this would be so great to put some there. If, I don't know who's publishing what, but if there's any shop-worn copies that I could buy, um, please hook me up with how I might do that and just keep replacing them because I would just love if everybody reads that book. And it's an easy read, so. It is an uh, easy read. And, and um, it, it's fun because we're, we're working to put it out in audiobook form too. And I selected an older gentleman to read it. And when you actually just listen to it, it it penetrates you deeply awesome. and and it's just it, for for him who this person who's reading is not very familiar at all with anything that's sci related and i've gotten wonderful message messages from the narrator of how it's touched him and how extraordinary a tale it is so yeah i think anybody that to get it in the hands of kids i think would be really really wonderful thank yeah. you for doing thank this you. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, you know, Ingo, there's a lot of sides to Ingo and, and uh, hopefully I could share that, that kind of curmudgeon and, but funny, but extraordinary side of Ingo and, and his wish for everybody to experience for themselves, right? That, that he can't answer the questions. He can't do the work. 
they're really saying we should do all of that. Hi, this is Tom. I particularly like the book, and I think it's apropos that it was published posthumously. I feel like this is Ingo reaching back from beyond to tell us a story. He tried to share remote viewing and his psychicness with the world. And instead of trying to do it in scientific terms and psychology terms, he told us a little tale. And I think it did a beautiful job of conveying to us what he's always tried to say to us. And I have to read it to make sure I get it right. But I feel there's one sentence from Purple Fables that ties this whole story together. And Ellie, you know it well. He says, I can't stay. There are places to go and things to see, but your own mind's eyes can see their own tales if you let them. And they can see more than tales if you let them also. So I feel like that encapsulates what the master of harmlessness said. Thank you, Ellie. Oh, you're very welcome. And, and you know that um, my son read those very lines at Ingo's memorial service. Who's next for a question? Go ahead. Uh, hello, Ellie. For me, it's a great honor to be able to just even talk to you. We're in Nanaimo right now. We actually normally live in Mexico. So wow. of course, of course, that book is amazing. I just finished it yesterday and I'm eventually going to get the whole, like all of his books he can get published. And I started out in 2012 by going to the library and having the libraries find me books because you couldn't buy everybody's guide to natural at ESP it was 180 bucks on Amazon. So I think I got the copy right here. But anyways, I did there, you know, they bring things to your door now with Amazon. So yeah, amazing. You keep rocking and get all of his stuff out there, especially for me, his art. If, if somehow there could be table books or just more internet, higher res, big, get it out. Because I love his art and a lot of things he did. Now, I have a question for you. Did you ever see Jean-Michel Basquiat? I know that Ingo and Warhol got along and I know that, that you know, they had met and they were in a cool social scene. So that's one question. Did you ever meet Basquiat? What was going on with Basquiat? Because I know they were neighbors. And then mm -hmm. the second question is um, uh, my experience being around people that are really proficient in the Psy world, because of course I've been practicing for nine years now and I've went to classes and all that, is that when you're near people that are good at Psy or have a lot of practice with it, it's often things happen spontaneously or it seems to work more and better for people that aren't even familiar with it. So I, I ask you like, What's your experience or take? Have you ever by accident gone out of your body and seen something cool or? So those are two questions. Again, thank you. Oh, I forgot the final thing. I, as far as I know, I'm the only white guy that knows as much as I do about the Mesoamerican calendar, which is the Mayan calendar, the Aztec calendar. I am adopted by Aztec people and I lived with Mayan tradition people in Chiapas. So I don't just make stuff up. He was born on uh, Ome Masat. Ome is two, it's the duality and it's the sacred number. And the duality of course refers uh, two to Ingo's sexuality, which I think is pretty cool. And uh, Masat is the deer. Uh, and I wrote it down just so I don't forget it, but it's intuition, sensibility, sensitivity, and perception. 
So for me, that kind of confirms that, wow, uh, for me, it means Ingo kind of came on a mish. It's like they almost picked the date to put him here or something. And he's just like all of us. We all have this. But it's for me, it's like not a coincidence. So again, thank you. And I'll wait for your answers. Oh, you're very welcome. Okay, so the first one is, I, you know, I don't know. I don't believe so. Um, Andy Warhol's studio was sort of um, caddy corner to 357 Bowery. Um, I know they traveled in the same, you know, art circles. And um, I, I know that they interacted, but I don't know to the extent that they were really involved with each other. I just know that um, they could see each other from their windows <laughs> from each other. And they were often at same parties together. And of course, you know, Ingo loved disco. <laughs> he made, uh, he, right? Like he made my sister and I take disco lessons. So, well, and he, and he, he so, um, he loved to be on the party scene. He was is not, he did not do drugs. So, um, but he enjoyed the culture of it. And so even stretching back from Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams really up until the nineties. So I can't say for cer certain um, what, to what extent with Andy Warhol and, and uh, those around him. But um, it was fun to know that you could look out the window and see his studio over there. And then, and then the second question, if you wouldn't mind repeating it. Well, first of all, that question, I also mentioned yeah. Jean-Michel Basquiat. Mm -hmm. He was a black guy with dreads mm -hmm. and his paintings now are worth a hundred million dollars. And he lived really close to Ingo in the eighties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know if they, he, he didn't speak to me about him and I don't know um, if they, if what interactions they may have had, although they were close and they probably traveled in the same circles. Yes. Thank you. And then the second question is if you had any spontaneous Psy experiences or if you've had some amazing Psy experiences that you like, you feel comfortable talking about. Thank you again and you take care. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, um, sometimes I would test, I would test my uncle. And uh, so one time he and Paula Roberts decided they were going to see if they could uh, move some things. So they had built like a house, like a house of cards. They put cards together in a form of fashion and they were really concentrating on moving those cards. And they were like really deep in thought and they had their eyes closed and I don't know, I just like reached over to the cards and I like softly blew on them and they fell over. And both Ingo and, and Paula were like, it works, it works. <laughs> but but uh, then I had to tell them that I had, had blown the cards down. Um, but, you know, Ingo also taught me how to, to develop energies around me and how to use those energies around me too. And um, the building itself, 357, had a lot of entities in it. And, you know, there were at times not, not happy experiences inside that building. And, and that's really how Ingo got to meet Paula Roberts was to come and clear out this entity, but as a as I mentioned, you know, salt and sage didn't work in clearing out these entities. So quite often there were happenings um, attributed to these entities in the building um, that were not always comfortable experiences, I would say. Thanks a lot. Uh, who, who's next? Who who's has something to ask or share? Here, Daz, just, oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, 
Hello. Uh, sorry. Uh, thank you, Ellie. I haven't met you before. I was in the archives a few times, though, and I've corresponded with you a bit. I really enjoyed yeah. the presentation. Um, my question is, if some of the manuscripts that are still in the archives, uh, like the Mongolian prophecies and some of the others, are going to be uh, on your docket to publish them at all, poems and all of that? Well, I mean, he um, he wrote a number of things, right? So he talked about the cosmic soap opera and Jimmy Wings and a lot of stories. And um, I think our goal is really to have people go to the archives and to reach our research at the archives and to use the archives. Um, mm -hmm. Our goal in publishing really was to prevent the $800, $900 thing that was happening on eBay and Amazon, especially around, it really around penetration, right? Um, but also to bring natural ESP and your Nostradamus factor and Ingo's works um, out there and to make them affordable and available, especially in ebook or in audiobook format, so that people who wanted to have copies of these could without having to pay these exorbitant prices and that it was readily available throughout the world. Um, but my mom also started the Ingo Swan Fellowship at the University of West Georgia to really encourage people to go and research and use, use the vast collection there across the board. And so there is that kind of weighing of, well, if we keep publishing, then people won't go. And, and, <laughs> and we want people to go and use the archives and use the library. If I could just uh, second that, I mean, it was so wonderful to be there because I learned, I, you know, I admired Ingo before I got there, but after reading so many of his letters and all of the manuscripts and not even looking at all the paintings, I didn't have time. I just really encourage people to go if you're at all interested in research or just finding out more about Ingo. There are, I don't think there have been that many people in the archives. Maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like there's only been a few and I sure hope more people take the opportunity to go there. I've been twice and it was really worth it. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. They say the university says it's actually it's most visit in special collections, it's most great, visited great, archives. Great. And, you know, that was our goal. I um, tracked down Cleve Baxter's archives and helped yeah. facilitate getting those. Um, Paula Roberts has given hers. Stephen Schwartz says he's giving his. Um, Bill, of course, Bill Roll, being the professor who started started kind of the program at the University of West Georgia, his archives being there. And we're really hoping that it's a repository for this knowledge and that people will take advantage of it and go and experience it there, yeah. Uh, Pablo, you have your hands up for a, for a question or a comment? Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, Ellie, something just came to my mind. I, I had been pondering over, and that will be familiar with this when I asked about that funny picture in the website, uh, in Ingo's website. But you mentioned he, he left some messages, uh, his paintings and so on. Do you think that was more like a prank or, or he just wanted people, if they wanted to check it or served a, a different purpose? Oh, I think he left lots of messages in his art, right? In, in his use of symbolism, I don't really haven't decoded much of anything. Um, but, you know, his art was also for him too, right? You know, he saw his paintings as his children and, and um, so he was 
putting into it a, a great deal of energy. But I think there are messages in there. I think there are symbols in there. And I think that they will, um, people resonate with the paintings differently and they feel differently. And I think that's what he was hoping for. And if you ever asked him, well, what is this about? Or what, is, what does this mean? He would say, well, what do you see there? What do you think it is? You know, and again, that was that kind of, I don't want to experience it. I want you to experience it. And I want you to figure it out for you, what it means for you. And, and it'll be different for everybody, I think. Thanks for sharing. And one last question. I, I knew about Ingo. In fact, I got into remote viewing and everything because of someone that knew him in the past. Uh, they were researchers that they happened to know Ingo and so on. His name Warren York. Uh, his associate, uh, Charlotte Geyer, she passed away a couple of years ago. But just in case, do those names, they were more like Scully and Mulder from the X-Files, right? They, they were always popping up in some places, asking questions, documenting. Do, do they sound familiar or they're like just millions of people visiting there? You know, I, you know, I don't, you know, I can't say for certain. I mean, Ingo had a stream of visitors, right? So um, any, anyone, and, and he was very great, and he was gracious to everybody who came. So I don't want to give that impression. I mean, he, he enjoyed speaking with individuals. He enjoyed speaking with the people in his neighborhood. I mean, he would treat uh, somebody, a homeless person on the street, just as well as when he was interacting with royalty. You know, that was just, the caliber of who he was. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. Who's next, guys? Anyone have any comment on the book or a question to ask? Go ahead, Carl. Yeah, I've got. Hi, Ellie. Um, Hi. What I, I was really interested in, if, if Ingo had ever taught you what he knew about astrology, because you said he always checked, I know he checked everybody's charts before he'd actually meet them. Did he teach you to do the same thing? And then my second question is, do you have your picture of your aura, your aura picture? Oh, I do have my aura picture, <laughs> but I don't know where it is. Um, um, I was just curious. Yeah, so my aura picture, I'm going to take that one back, is like all of the colors. And um, Ingo said that was because I was able to manifest things, right? So where I had to use the aura photograph, like that's how he would see the world, right? So he saw energies and lights around individuals. Um, and But would never tell anybody what their aura looked like, right? Or just like he would not really do astrology readings because he felt like if you told somebody, they would manifest it themselves, right? And, and guide it themselves. Um, but we did work together on a book and it, the manuscript is at the University of West Georgia and that is the astrology of serial killers. Um, he felt like to really explain how he saw astrology, he wanted to take a group that would be so extreme, right? That you could do humanitarians or, or good things, but we all have this level of, of um, good in us, right? So not, not enough to differentiate, but you could really take the extreme, right? The serial killer, I mean, that is so far away from the norm and do the astrological chart of the serial killers. And the way he looked at it, instead of how I think most people look at astrology is he would look at the degree and then um, what degree and what sign that was. So it was based on um, 
the degree instead of the sign, if that makes sense. And so we spent a lot of time and he would talk to me at great length about his method of doing this. And, but really his greatest student was my mom. And he and my mom were, were great students together of astrology. That's really interesting, thank you. Who's next guys, anyone else? Um, Ali, I have a question for you. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, yes. yeah, go, go ahead. Okay. The comment about the vibrations in the universe and the, the sound of the universe, I could barely hear what he was saying about that. However, I've had those experiences. And um, did he ever equate them to the, the chant, the, the chanting the the monks of Tibet, the Om, or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, he he everything he painted his furniture. So so a lot of his furniture he found on the street, and he would drag it in, and then he would refinish it or or paint it, and he always painted it in Tibetan colors. Um, he had a lot of music that sort of unleashed vibrational energies. So um, yeah, I think he was a, a strong believer in that. I mean, he was always searching for something that was beyond what you would think of our natural five senses and, and, and um, vibrationally very important to him. But he could not levitate. No, he couldn't levitate, no, no. No, he couldn't levitate. No, at least I never yeah, saw him. I never, I never saw him levitate. Let's put it that way. Okay, I, I'll, I, I won't go any, I won't go any more down that path. But thank right. you. Mm -hmm. I have another question, if I may. Um, I'm a little confused. I always thought people's auras changed regularly. Like if you, it sounds like you're saying one picture for life, and that's. Is that accurate or? No, no, no. And, and no, I was just saying he said you should get it done because um, so you could see you could see what I see, right? That um, just to see what's around you. But he would say it would change all over, right? And, and we could be walking down the street and he would say, oh, that that person. Oh, that's not good. Their aura is very dark. They're probably going to die yeah. soon okay. or they're very sick, right? So it was always in flux. I think it was more so that you could, you could see that there were these energy fields around you and you could understand that they could be seen, right? And, and that you could work to seeing them. Yes. Thank you. That clarifies that. I have a not a question about the book. I have a comment about the book that I really enjoyed. Um, I'm not sure if I understand it fully yet, though. I'll have to read it again. I think is the, uh, uh, but I really enjoyed it. The part that uh, and it was over a, a a period of parts that every time uh, people looked at him, uh, the, the the character and about the main character, the eyes were different colors. I thought that was. I don't know why that resonated with me so much, but I, I particularly like that bit. Um, and another bit I liked as well is, um, and this comes from actually, you know, visiting Ingo and, and meeting Ingo, 
is uh you know the the, the bits about the animals and stuff because I, I remember that that you know Inga was sat on that stoop when I when I went there and when you know I sat there and had a coffee with him and stuff and the uh he kind of had this uh, resonance with the uh, with, with the local birds, the pigeons and stuff. Uh, and I I heard a good story off of uh, Robert Knight about how he was only accepted into the building uh, once the pigeons told Ingo to let him in. Which, yeah. uh, that had some good resonance as well. I'm looking to see if I can. Um, I mean, I think he would call them. I think they reacted to them, to Ingo. I mean, he was... Um, just had that energy about him. I was looking to see if I had a photograph of it. Um, I mean, we would go and we would walk down to Christopher Square Park, which is in the West Village. So it was a few miles to the West. And we would sit in that park and the pigeons would come to him too. You know, just as much as they would um, fly in a great flock and then land in the in on the stoop and around him. And of course, um, probably because he fed them too. You know, he would he uh, would bring out a, oh here we go. So this is this is him with my this is him with my son with the pigeons. They're all the pigeons. Yeah, that definitely resonated with me when I when I read that about the little animals that just brought it all back and the, the story from Robert Knight where he said that you know Ingo said I'll only let you in if the pigeon flies around in the air comes down and then lands on my left foot within the next five right. minutes or so and and that actually happened so that was the only reason he got he got let inside yeah right yeah fantastic anyone else got anything they'd like to ask or share yeah hi ellie it's russell hi russell just, uh, you know first off i want to thank you for making ingo available to us uh to see all this extra material and everything is you know it's a dream come true the book uh, I really loved, and, and naturally, you know, part of what's always fascinated me and, and interests me in regards to Ingo is the resolving of or the eradication of the things that impinge on, on human expression. So in the, the book, Master of Harmlessness, which I love very much once, everybody else in my house, let me read it, um, was the, the, the singular you know, bubbles or, or demons as they were called, but more importantly, the larger collective ones. Uh, I found the manner or, or the implied manner of popping or dissolving those to, to be very impactful to me. So one question I do have, and it's a new question because I just became aware of it. What, if you don't mind, what method did uh, Ingo and the person he brought in to assist him utilize to clear the space of negative presence? Oh, oh, so you're talking about in the building? Yeah. You're talking about in the building? What did they do? Um, <clears throat> well, first they got, they shored themselves up with a lot of wine mm -hmm. and then they um, went and threw a lot of salt all over the floor and burned a lot of sage. And um, it didn't really have the effect that, that they were looking for in that, in that regard. Um, I don't know if Ingo actually interacted with these entities, but I knew they were in the building. Um, he says that when he 
when he first moved into the building, when he was just renting his space, it was, it's really was the third floor that there were a pair of um, transvestite prostitutes that lived on the third floor and they had put a um, upside down pentagram. They mm-hmm. painted that on the wall. And um, even though Ingo had ultimately painted over it, um, Charlie House, who was a known astrologer, lived on the third floor and actually um, was, was worked a great deal with Ingo, but had his own clients. Um, Charlie House actually passed away on the third floor and it was Ingo who discovered him. And um, it was kind of from that moment, he always said that the third floor, just kind of bad things always happened on the third floor. So after Charlie House passed away, uh, an artist from France moved in, kind of made it her studio and she's very healthy. Um, Probably within two or three years, she developed cancer and she passed away. Um, People who moved in after they really were had a great relationship they they broke up and had bad things happen in their life so um obviously Ingo knew that something was going on some bad energy had been attracted to this third floor and encapsulated in the third floor and whatever was there he just whatever he did was not successful and that ultimately led and Paula Roberts talks about this story so Paula Roberts is um um in in this I, I guess a, a British psychic. She had a she had a column in the New York Post, but she had also been on Unsolved Mysteries. And so Ingo Ingo called his network, and they connected her up. They connected the two of them up, and um, she immediately hit on right away in that exact area where that upside down pentagram could be. And I know that she worked really hard and and tried to direct a lot of en- positive energy. And, you know, it just never, it never worked. With, with that being what I guess we would call a pre-existing situation, did mm-hmm. Ingo ever talk about, or de- did he ever feel that by the work he was trying to accomplish, uh, bringing people aware of their psychic selves, specifically in like resurrecting the mysterious, where he talks about, you know, some kind of gloomy things, but by getting psychically activated, uh, you can overcome and, mm-hmm. and maintain. Did he ever at any point indicate or feel that any of the presences or attacks around him were personal or as a result of his effort to bring a positive revelation to people? I don't think that he, I mean, I didn't get this. He was very happy. He was happy in the, in the building. Um, he surrounded himself with a lot of different religious iconology. So um, in his bedroom, he actually had pictures of Jesus and angels and, and Mary. And Mary is very important to him. But he had just as many statues uh, from Eastern religions as well. And then some Russian um, Eastern Orthodox things. So I think um, I never got the sense that he felt personally attacked, right? Okay. I didn't. I didn't get that. Get that and, sense. And, and and I think he was really strong in who he was and um, his grounding of who he was. Yeah, in part, I guess I was uh, deferring without saying uh, the, to the prospect in penetration, where he may have been followed or responded to 
for penetrating that situation. Yeah, um, I would just say that he probably had a lot of CIA handlers keeping track of him. Mm -hmm. Okay. Or right. other or other lettered agencies keeping track of him. I mean, you know, he sure. would say, "This is CIA. This person's MI6. This is Mossad." Right? He knew he knew who they were, um, and they and he handled them accordingly. I mean, there were frequent visitors as well. And I think always around him, probably for a great part of his life. And he just adapted to them. You know. All right. Final question. Is it okay? Some of the, um, the there was some really new and interesting stuff in your slide presentation. Is that okay? Like if you took a screenshot and shared that, or would you prefer, and Daz maybe oh. wants to answer too, that it just remain included in the video only? Yeah, I think screenshots are fine. I mean, and I, you know, there's the great, there's the great image of Ingo, and you know, Ingo was a person too, right? He was a family member, um, he was a friend, he was a collaborator, um, he was, and but he was just as much of an explorer, right? And in uh, um, uh, the concept of going out and, like I said, experiencing, and so if you if you share that, I'm happy for that. Okay, Gav. Okay, great. Well, speaking of family, I'll, I've never really shared this with anybody before, but my first, like I'll say the connection or bonding uh, to Ingo was when I discovered his autobiography. And when he talked about uh, his grandmother being um, a point of protection, it was very moving to me because I uh, was having horrible experiences in my childhood with certain factors and uh, parental issues were fairly significant mm -hmm. and it was my grandmother literally that kept me sane kept me sustained probably kept me out of prison ultimately but she uh, you know never faltered and when I very first started to read that part of Ingo's uh, autobiography you know where he was not always well received for his advanced perceptions how she had protected him and, and so that started my my connection and then you know from there the fascination has grown and the the new stuff he shared today was was really meaningful so thank you Ellie oh you're very welcome yeah he had well two grandmothers um his parents grew up as neighbors and his, um so one grandma grandmother Johnson and grandmother Swan they both ran boarding houses for miners in Telluride and they were both extraordinary cooks. And I think that's where he got his love of cooking and entertaining was from his two grandmothers. And uh, the one grandmother you're referencing, um, she was sort of thought of as the town gypsy, if you would, right? So people would come to her as, and, and wanna know if they were having a boy or a girl. And she taught my grandmother how to be a palm reader. So there was a lot actually going on in that home. And then his other grandmother, that, that was the Swedish side, the Swan side of the family. And um, her husband, Andrew, passed away very young, where well, they were young in their marriage. And she always felt like he was still around her in the house. And she married another Andrew and he passed away too. So um, she would talk about having these presences around her in her house. 
So it wasn't, it wasn't like it wasn't on one side or the other. He just had a stronger connection to his grandmother on his um, maternal side. Okay, I have a question here from Anita. She asked, I knew the answer to this, but I'll, I'll let you answer this as well. Did Ingo ever write books under any other aliases or did he co-write with any other writers? Mm -hmm. Sure, I mean, he wrote his erotic stories in the 70s under different pen names, yes. Um, did he write with others? I don't know. Anyone else out there have any questions or any comments about the book? Go ahead. I have a question about his interactions with uh, Robert Monroe because I know they met each other. I believe they did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I don't know much about it, but I know that they. Well, Ingo says right in the real story of remote viewing that they met at Zelda's Virgo party, um, and that they were often he would often go visit Bob at his farm, and enjoyed that. So I think they were strong. There was a strong sort of connection. We were both kind of in the same area. This was kind of the new and happening thing in the '70s, and so um, I think they were. They were, there was some sort of collaboration. I don't know to what level or to what extent. So, thank you. I have a question. I think he's on mute. Yeah, uh, go ahead. You're, you need to unmute. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Uh, question about uh, the history. I've read something about the history of remote viewing and, of course, his involvement. But um, I'm just wondering, did were you aware that he was involved in testing, that there was some early testing, I think, in the late 60s in New York City, and then there was this uh, going back and forth to the West Coast, um, was it secret? He couldn't say anything about it. Um, was he open about it? You know, were you even, did you even know about it? I don't know anything about that. Um, I only know what he, he writes about in the real story of remote viewing. I mean, um, I suspect that he was doing things with the government much sooner than what he says. And I suspect he was doing a lot of research and experiments with other organizations sooner, but I don't have anything to support that. Mm, okay, thank you. I've got a question. Did Ingo ever go fishing in Northwest Arkansas? I don't know if he did or not, actually. He wasn't one to, he wasn't one to, he wasn't one to travel much, but um, he did travel with, what, Tom, didn't he travel with you once? We went to Mexico together. I had something, he asked the question, Don asked the question about traveling back and forth to the West yes. Coast. Yeah. I remember the one time that you told me, I don't know if you remember telling me the story, Ingo and Rob Cowart and I came over to your house for dinner and Ingo had told you that we could read your minds and you and your sister were closing your minds down the whole meal so that we couldn't figure out what it was you were thinking. So you, you knew that much. Well, I can tell you all this much. It's been plenty cold up here and we've had a lot of fun, me and my buddies. And I'm sorry I'm late getting in here. It's just wonderful to be here. 
Can I ask a question? Um, yeah, did he did he ever travel to the you know India or to the or into China or into I you know where did it, where did the links to the Eastern cultures come from? You know, this is links to Tibet, to Tibetan culture. Did it come from something to family, or did he did he have it all his life, or did he develop it at a particular stage, or, or do you know? Mm-hmm. Well, when after college, he joined the army. This was like at the end of the Korean War, and he was stationed in the Far East. And he took, um, he actually worked on the, the, the general staff for the whole, the whole Far East. And so he was afforded opportunities to travel in Korea and Japan and um, through South Korea and took that opportunity to study, at least in the East Asian right? um, By visiting locations and really getting a sort of bird's eye view and going in and and spending time in different cultures. So I know that he was on leave quite often and would travel, but I don't know, I don't know that he ever traveled um, further, further west to Tibet or whatnot. And just know he was, he was very enamored by Eastern philosophy and when he came back from the Far East and he came to New York, he immediately started studying, especially the early occultists. And I think they drew a lot of their knowledge on Eastern mysticism. He didn't have any particular master that he that he gravitated to, to or from that side of the world. Oh. No, I think, you know, just Ingo studied everything, anything and everything he studied. Thank you. Uh, any of you guys got any other questions or comments? Yeah, I've got a question, Ellie. Okay. Uh, thank you for meeting with us. Um, and I'm sorry if you've already said this, I had to step away for a little bit, but do you do remote viewing at all? Or do you do anything with the esoteric? May I ask why not? No. Um, so it's really interesting. You know, that's a side of Ingo I did not know. I mean, I knew when he was bringing his students we didn't know what that was. We knew they were students and we knew they could read our minds. And that was right. That, as Tom said, we kind of shielded ourselves. But you have to remember, Ingo would, had high security clearance and he took that very, very seriously. And so we did not know what he was doing. We did not know about remote viewing. And remote viewing was not really made public until the mid 90s. Um, I knew that when Bob Durant came, you know, Bob Durant came and studied with him and and he and Inga would do remote viewing sessions and I would transcribe them for him. But that was like the one side that I did not know. I know, so Ingo, Ingo imparted on me everything else except for remote viewing. And I think what he said to my mom was that we weren't good candidates for remote viewing. And maybe it was just because he wanted to share all of his other sides and not be everything about remote viewing. Remote viewing was just one of many things that he was interested in, involved with, and wanted to share with us. Thank you. And Daz, if you can let me share my screen for one second. Ellie talked about the spirits in Ingo's loft. I would like to show you a photo that I took that shows several orbs. So let me 
if you guys can see that, that's Robert Knight and, and several others. And you can see the several orbs. And I have quite a few photographs that have those orbs in his studio. And I thought that sort of supports Ellie's thoughts about activities and entities in his loft. I thought you would be interested in seeing that. That's all I had. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, if, um, I think you always felt there were things there and that things around Ingo. I don't think Ingo was frightened of them. Did you get that sense, Tom? No, they were just, they were just there. You know, it's like you say, you could feel them, but it was to be expected that you could feel them. You could feel them, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ellie, you mentioned that you were going to get the uh, the book um, done as a, a an audio book. Do you have a time scale for that, or is it in production at the moment? Um, I think it's going to be out very soon. Right? I did the last proofreading of it, so I think it'll be out very soon. I don't Excellent. have a time. I don't have a timetable, but I think it'll be very soon. Okay, and I, yeah, and yeah. I hope and I hope so because it's it's a fun narration, it's a fun voice to listen to, I should say. Excellent. If you could let us know when that's out, that that would be fantastic. Yeah. Huh? We'll let everyone on the on the local, you know, remote viewing boards know about that. Yeah. Thank you. Any other questions from anyone here? Well, I'll say the sad thing I've got Des out had it tonight. <laughs> Brenda just posted a question in the chat box, I think is for Ellie. Okay, she, uh, Brenda posted, where did Ingo think we go after this life? Well, if you read Resurrecting the Mysterious, right? He says, we, if we have not um, done our job to develop ourselves psychically, we will end up in sort of the uh, middle, I don't know, I'm the middle, kind of middle zone, nowhere as a just an unformed energy and will be attracted to the next copulating thing that is happening around us. And so that is why he says that we should work on um, becoming these kind of light beings so that we can reach a higher stage so we don't keep repeating and repeating and repeating over and over again. Um, I mean, that's what, that's what he says in Resurrecting the Mysterious. If others have read it and have an interpretation, please please share too. Well, I'll, I'll throw one thing in, Brenda. So the chapter that Ellie just referred to is Resurrecting the Mysterious, page 37, and it's called The You, a preamble. And it's the clearest and most direct, almost unsettling description of the possibility so if you have that book or if you don't have that book I highly recommend getting it there's so many things in here that bring about his deeper philosophy which is a combination of all of the various practices and studies and kind of shares more of his conclusions than I've ever found anywhere in his work so I, I highly recommend it yeah so Russell do you have a moment you could probably read maybe just a paragraph 
from that chapter. <clears throat> All right. Okay. Do you want me to shine this guy flashlight under my chin? <laughs> um, okay, the first thing to bear in mind is that when you die, others are also dying at that exact moment, perhaps even millions. People usually think of their death when they, I'm sorry. Yeah, people usually think of their death when they do think of it as a unique individual and isolating experience. When you leave the body, you will naturally be deprived of all contacts with its physical perceptual systems, eyes, ears, touch, etc., as well as the body's brain. If you have depended exclusively on the physical perceptual systems and have not activated any of the transphysical psychic perceptual systems, it is most likely that you will be cast into a state resembling deep, dark, sensationless sleep. You will have no perceptions, not even of yourself. You might not then even be able to leave the physical body, but get buried with it and remain in the grave for a long time until through some chance, your natural psychic systems activate and you wake up. So I'll leave it there. Um, <clears throat> but it does become more hopeful as the chapter progresses because he talks about various aspects of this awakening. And at a certain point, you do actually get conscious volition, but only if you've prepared yourself. And, and that's one of the things that's always fascinated me and, and really why I take the position on Ningo that I take, his work wasn't you know, to get us to fill out a form in the correct way or do this or do that or do the other thing. I believe deeply from what I've seen in the archives, letters that he exchanged with various people, he had no other intent, and, or I should say this, his deepest intent in my opinion was to help humanity, was to see us liberate ourselves. And that passion I believe drove him through so many things and including probably some heartbreak when things were in my opinion kind of taken away or from him or squashed by agencies and forces. Um, he refers to a force called the equalizer in um, resurrecting the mysterious where whatever it is, it's, it's basically kind of trying to, to keep us as human beings down, if you will. And his, his dream, I truly believe his dream, and in so many words, he said it in, in letters exchanged in the archive, he just wanted people to see. He, wanted, he, he probably, you know, when he was trying to get um, perceptual expansion certified, so to speak, through SRI and that program, it, it was all for the benefit of others. It was so that, so that we, each of us had a chance to wake up. I think the best um, compilation of that is, is in Resurrecting the Mysterious. Um, yeah, I, if I could uh, ask a question relating to um, reincarnation. One of the manuscripts Ingo talks about being the reincarnation of a famous Hollywood actor and sending other people that felt the same way. So Matt, I wanted to ask Ellie and Tom if Ingo ever talked about that as well as this whole idea that he traced all his reincarnations back 
2,000 years, which he doesn't document in that manuscript, just the first one. So that, yeah, that's my question, if, if, if he talked about that to either of you. Mm -hmm. I think the, um, what was important for him in understanding sort of his, his initiative into past life regression was to understand why he had these ailments and why he was experiencing what he was in his physical body. Right. And when he came to understand in his past life um, who he was and what, what this person had, right, Rudolf Valentino, and having these stomach issues, they, they instantly evaporated for him, right? His vision got better, his, these ailments that he had had suddenly were alleviated. And I think it was the experience of just understanding that. Um, but I can't answer like why, why people feel that they are, um, everybody feels that they are uh, the same, they have the same past lives. And I think Ingos talks about that in Resurrecting the Mysterious. Um, I know that that sort of past lives was very important to him. And that's why we put out the Windy Song. So the Windy Song, right, he, he wrote in the 70s and he tried to get it published forever and, and nobody would ever publish it. And I think it's just the most beautiful story about reincarnation. It's a very simple story, but it's a very elegant story and um, a very touching story about reincarnation. Ellie, and I was gonna ask more or less what John was was talking about because I read this other book by Raul da Silva, and mm -hmm. he also mentioned that Ingo was really reserved about it. It was more like it was for him and himself only. Mm -hmm. So, do, do do you have any impression of that? And my second question is, did he any time talked about how he went to tackle knowing about his past lives, or or was there something he never discussed? Mm -hmm. You know, I, he only really mentioned it in, in the way of, um, I have this wonderful story called The Windy Song and really about getting in touch with this aspect of what you've been through in past lives um, from the viewpoint of alleviating these physical ailments, right? So that was that was really how he discussed it with me. Um, I know, I know he studied it extensively when he studied Edgar Casey. He certainly studied it when he was with L. Ron Hubbard. You know, that was part of something that was very important to him when he was with Scientology. Um, but he never really discussed it. He never really wanted to, to talk to me about like who he was exactly. I think it was the experiences and what he was learning and what he could let go from those traumatic experiences in his past life to help him in where he was now. And is that, sure. did he talk to you about it, Tom? We really didn't discuss um, reincarnation other than the fact that we'd be sitting around the table eating and he would mention, oh, that's because I did this. And it was almost like, you know, I caught the bus yesterday morning or something. It was all matter of fact. And we would go on with our conversations and I would usually nod <laughs> and we would move on. So no, we never really talked about reincarnation in any depth. Yeah. One last quick question. Did he ever encourage you or anyone else to, to look into your own past lives? 
like he did with the aura photo, you should at least get it once in a lifetime. I mean, I think, you know, you understand too that different things were important to Ingo at different um, junctures in his life. And I think in the late 60s, early 70s, reincarnation was very important to him, right? And, um, but not, you know, and, and different things were important at different times. So when I was with him as an adult, he was working on the serial killer book. He was working on, he had just finished the great, appar great apparitions of Mary. He was very much into his erotic collages. You know, so Ingo traversed a whole, a whole like landscape of things that were interesting to him. I think if we had spoken to him in the late sixties or early seventies, we would probably get a different, we'd have a different conversation with Ingo about reincarnation. But I would say that he does delve into it and explores it in, I think very eloquently in Resurrecting the Mysterious. Okay, yeah, ladies. Bill's gonna point out some small thing. I'm like 20 miles from Flip in Arkansas. So I thought you might get a laugh out of that. Okay. <laughs> Any other questions or comments, guys? I had one more question. Um, Ellie, regarding uh, Ingo Swan's um, ideals about the afterlife and everything, have you heard of the fourth way? Or um, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Gurdjieff, I think yes, it is. Yes, yes, yeah. So if you if you actually, if in um, the real story of remote viewing, he talks about uh, meeting the great love of his life and that she was a great follower of the fourth way. And I think it did have an impact in, with him. And again, this would be the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and so I think they did study it together for a while, yes. It's awesome, thank you. Ellie, may I throw one thing out to Pablo's question? Mm -hmm. um, probably more important than any other aspect of that one phase of Ingo's life where he was looking at uh, prior biographies in resurrecting the mysterious, you'll see he prefers a term re-embodiment versus mm -hmm. reincarnation. Yeah. But one significant thing that he achieved that I, I don't know many people understand the import of is he in the Scientology modality became what's known as a class six auditor, which is no small task. In fact, it's probably more difficult um, than any of the other alleged levels and so forth. And during that time, while he's moving through the various classes, he was required to do all kinds of his own personal self-introspection to the point that then he assisted others. So as a classics auditor, he would have probably sat for a minimum of hundreds of hours and listened to other people describe their perceptions of uh, an out of this life biography, and other, all kinds of other unusual mental phenomena. So I presume that some parts of Resurrecting the Mysterious um, specifically could come from listening to, you know, I can't imagine anything less than 50 or 60 different people perceive and tell their story about previous biographies and a number of other things. So, so he, he was, you know, that, like I said, a classics auditor was, was quite an accomplishment. Russell, I really appreciate that insight. And I really need to get fast through the other couple of books I'm reading right now to 
to resurrect in the mysterious, but yeah, thank you very much. It's a it's a long. I mean, it is a it is um it is a tomb. I mean, it is a a thick read, and it is um, a journey. The book is really a journey, and and um, I don't know, Tom. Did you read it from cover to cover? How long did it take you? I'm about two thirds of the way finished with it, and the the first book. It's actually two books in one, and I don't recall the the actual. Mm -hmm names of each, but the first book sort of introduces you to the second one, and the second one gives you the detail. So yeah, I'm about two thirds of the way through it, and I'm finding it enjoyable. Yeah. I recommend it. Yeah, I mean, whereas, um, whereas sometimes Ingo's writing can be strenuous, this book, these two, these two pieces that we put together are actually, um, I think a different style of writing and very enjoyable. I mean, at least I did found it very enjoyable to read. Ingo often writes the way he speaks. Yeah. And this is a good example of that. So some of his sentences are a little long, but that's the way he spoke. And it's, it's like you're having a conversation with him when you're reading this. It really is. It feel, I'm reading it too. I'm a little behind you, Tom, but it, it just feels like he's right there, you know, like uh, really great books are like that. You really feel the author. It's, it's wonderful. I should be speaking up so much that I just feel being around these people, the folks here, this makes me feel better. I just said, I don't know. There's just something nice about everybody here. I don't can't put words to it. Uh, I had some working. We've got this major traffic outages. Mental communications worker, and I'm waiting for you to call back. And I call my boss. Like, man, these guys are a bunch of idiots and everything. But they're just they're not very good. I, I know I got to make a change. I got to go back from access back to transmission. But being around with the people in this group, it just, it's like sublime. When I go and, and hang out here as a lay person, it makes me feel better every time. Because I just know the people on, the, on this group, they just won't get any better. I'm sorry. I should have said all that, but that's how I feel. The people here are good people. Thanks, Bill. I love you guys. Any other questions or comments? Uh, okay, go ahead then, yeah. Go first, XYZ Rush. Mark, go. Um, I love reading the books, but my life is such that it's really challenging to uh, find time to sit down and do that. And I really love Audible. Um, are there any plans to try and um, incorporate some of that? Yeah, so... Currently out in audiobook form, um, Penetration. Uh, we want we wanted to put out Penetration, the special edition, but uh, Amazon won't let us because they say it's too close to Penetration. Um, it's that audiobook we inherited from a previous publisher, so we have to let the contract go, wait until that expires, and then we can put out the the updated version as well. Uh, the Great Apparitions of Mary. Purple Fables, um, 
your Nostradamus factor, uh, psychic literacy, which is another just great work that came out of the University of West Georgia. And um, Nick Cook, right, the editor of Resurrecting the Mysterious, his son is an, is an actor and he's actually going to be, he's, he's in the process of narrating an audiobook for Resurrecting the Mysterious. Um, the Windy Song is on audiobook. We're working with another narrator for Preserving the Psychic Child that will be out in audiobook. Um, and then interestingly, and I love this story, there was a young man who just loves Ingo's things and we found that he was uh, really wanted to put psychic sexuality out and started to just put them out on his own YouTube channel. So we got in touch with him and now he's going to be doing the official version of psychic sexuality in an audio book form. So he's about halfway finished now with that. And I'm kind of kind of cool and exciting and, and to see a young YouTuber kind of take over and tackle Ingo's psychic sexuality. That's great. Um, Everybody's Guide to Natural ESP. I think that's a hard one to put in audiobook because you have to kind of, you really have to see, I think, the sketches that what Ingo is talking about. And I'm not sure that that is lends itself to audiobook form. Um, I think that's why we kind of been hesitant to put that one out. Um, and then I don't really know it, you know. Um, Ingo's reality boxes and the wisdom category and the two secrets of power books. Um, those two, I think, have a big graphical interface and, and might be a challenge in audiobook form as well. So um, we're trying to get them out there, but the ones that I think that could resonate and people could relate to and, and use in an, in an audio format, that's our goal. Um, just to follow up with that a little, you all might know this, uh, you know. But um, if you buy a book on Kindle, I ha I've been having trouble with my eyes, so it's hard to read. And um, the Alexa app, it, it's like a computer voice, but it'll read you anything you buy on Kindle, which helps, you know, um, to whoever asks that. You know, if you get it in the Kindle version, you can just hear the. Yeah. I'm familiar. It's uh, it's not the best interface, and yeah. I have to experiment <laughs> with it a little bit, but it works. It works if I listen to that and read the book, you know, yeah, yeah, it works. We have a question from Sandra. She asked, um, did one of Ingo's old friends get in touch with him after the death change uh, or are there, any, are there any received messages or signs? Well, you know, I spoke about Dr. Bob Hieronymus certainly heard Ingo's voice. Um, Lynn Oliveria at the University of West Georgia said she has heard his voice um, encouraging her and guiding her. And, and she came again before she came to the University of West Georgia. She was not, she didn't even know anything about psy, anything, parapsychology, nothing. And to suddenly to have this experience. And she says her work with Ingo has been life changing. Uh, Rebecca Hoffberger, the founder and director of the American Visionary Art Museum often feels Ingo's presence and guidance um, with the paintings that are there on display in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I don't know, you know, those are just what's been shared with me in terms of people interacting with, with some sort of presence they feel is, is Ingo. Um, others have said, um, 
they they can they feel directed in dreams by Ingo. We've I've gotten those comments. Um, that's actually actually why we started the um, Prophecy Project website, which is really the outcrop of your Nostradamus factor. So where Ingo collected premonitions, uh, he put it like an ad in a, a newsletter and started to correct, collect premonitions. And because people were saying were writing to the to us um, through the website, we started this, the premonition, um, the Prophecy Project website. And that's just simply to collect people's premonitions. It's not, we don't use it in any way. We don't gather anything. It's just sort of like a community board for people to share, to see if there are commonalities about premonitions. You know, Ingo with your Nostradamus factor being that group, group experiences of premonitions happening. Um, so really, it's um, we just try to listen and, and respond and, and respect what the experiences people have. And they say they have had with Ingo or an essence of Ingo or some something related to Ingo. Thanks for that. Um, any last questions, guys? Because we've had Eddie here for a couple of hours now. I don't want to keep her too long. Okay, I'll try and be really quick. Uh, once when Ingo was still alive, again, 2012, when I was reading the real story around, I can't remember if it was a year before or a year after, I can't remember, but anyways, a uh, thought came in and it was, it's not like a thought where you kind of hear your words and you know what, they're going to come before they come. Like it just appeared as what? And, and uh, yeah, I thought, shit, that's Ingo Swan because the words and the theme and what it was relating to. And that's happened two other times that I remember pretty clearly. So who knows? I'll find out when I'm dead, I guess. But my questions were, and of course, uh, I lovingly support everything Ingo does. He's my kind of dude. Okay, so uh, my questions were, um, I kind of heard the rumor, maybe the people with the, that study his archives know this, that there's a movie script for the Star Children. So if that's available, how I could get it. And then second of all, oh, sorry, the Star Children was an audio book that you can buy off Amazon. It's not a book, sorry. It's actual music that's written. It's got six, seven songs on it. It's cool. It's kind of like from its era and its time. But again, I think it was being prepared for a movie. Then the second thing is, again, for the archives or for Ellie, uh, the real story, his, you know, remote viewing, the real story that was for free when he was alive on the Internet. And it's still for free. And it's mm -hmm. just amazing. It comes to the end and then it goes when it goes into the CIA program, for lack of a better way of saying it quickly the book kind of stops there and it says part two coming, which mm -hmm. I interpreted, well, it makes sense. The guy's going into, you know, a top secret program. What, what do you know? I think Russell's already told me about this, but what do you know about a second part to the real story? And obviously if you study stuff, there's all kinds of information, but that's it. Yeah. I mean, he, he takes us on a journey on a number of things and then leaves it hanging right there's a number anybody's been to his archives of probably i think john knows you said right there are a number of number of things that he started that he doesn't finish and it's sort of frustrating because you're you're wait you're just been baited and you're waiting to hear the great ending and there is no great ending and it's it's you know true for his art too um if it's there if he did it it's in the archives or he just didn't and and left it at that I did ask him. I did ask him about the book, um, and he said to me uh, he didn't want to continue any further because he might have to uh, say some bad things about some of his friends, and he would never say bad things about any of his friends. 
unless we're yeah, and it. yeah so and to answer your so star children was was going to be the soundtrack to the movie version of starfire and at the archives is a um i believe a um sort of a script for what would have been the movie Here's the album, you just reminded me of it. Oh, look, I have two. And do you, yeah, is that what yeah. you're gonna yeah. make a play? Yeah, so I think it's a really fun, I think it's an interesting album because he worked with Steve Halpern on that. Steve Halpern, of course, being right, the big transcendental new age um, sound and music. And yet here it is, it's sort of a disco new agey rock um music oriented piece and and i'll tell you he would put that on all the time and dance to i mean he loved it he loved it he, he wrote the lyrics and he he just he relished that album is it on amazon yeah. music i think steve halpern has it on his website we have a link on the ingo swan website to it hey i know everybody we don't go out of this world, everything stays behind, but I just, I've got to lose my collision cop and somebody else gets it. That's, that's what I want to keep. Any other last questions, guys, or any last comments before we wrangle this up? Just one comment or a question. There's one book of Ingo I couldn't get uh, easily and probably is not related to, to anything we talked about, but is what will happen when the Soviets take over. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. that, that's the only one, but the, it is, you know, completely Ingo's book and yeah. you remark about it. Yes, yes. Um, I was in high school when he wrote that book and um, I remember it clearly his friend Tom Joyce uh, did all the graphics for us, all the drawings for it. Uh, we have, we have, I have all the original plates for it. So when it was printed, so he self, he's actually self-published that book. Um, yes, but we're not gonna republish it, but there are copies at the University of West Georgia. And I think every once in a while they crop up on eBay too. Okay, thank you. Yeah, just curious about it. Yeah, so, so see, Tom has a copy of it, yeah. So um, you have to, you know, Ingo came through the Cold War and the real threat of the Soviets was very front and center for him and ever present for him. And I think it's, it's, it's actually a compilation book. So he's edits a series of different essays put together. He was not fond of communism. No, he's not fond of communism, no. <laughs> Eddie, on behalf of everyone here, I just want to thank you for sharing so much with us today and sharing so much of your, your family life and your personal life as well. It's, it's been great. And thank you for that excellent uh, presentation at the beginning. It was, it was brilliant. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to talk about Ingo and to share them with you. Yeah, it's been awesome. It's been an awesome evening. Um, I'm sure everyone here uh, would want to say thank you as well. You know, so. Well, you're a buddy. <laughs> Bill and thank you, Ellie. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
Yeah, thank Great you very much for the weekend. So and thank you, everyone, for turning out. Thank you, too, Dad. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Have a good weekend. Dad's you just too. the coolest Bye-bye. cow on the planet. I mean, look at him. He has that, that friendly smile. We just love him. It makes things the world better. Take care, guys. You have a good weekend. You too. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Signal Line, a remote viewing podcast. Don't forget to check out remoteviewed.com for remote viewing resources or our videos on YouTube under Remote Viewed.